One rule of the road not directly stated elsewhere in this book. The editor is always right. You can approach the act of writing with nervousness, excitement, hopefulness, or even despair. The sense that you can never completely put on the page what's in your mind and heart. You can come to it because you want a girl to marry you or because you want to change the world. Come to it anyway, but lightly. Let me say that again. You must not come lightly to the blank page. I'm convinced that fear is at the root of most bad writing. Good writing is often about letting go of fear and affectation. Affectation itself, beginning with the need to define some sorts of writing as good and other sorts as bad, is fearful behavior. Good writing is also about making good choices when it comes to picking the tools you plan to work with. I was ashamed. I have spent a good many years since, too many, I think, being ashamed about what I write. I think I was 40 before I realized that almost every writer of fiction and poetry who has ever published a line has been accused by someone of wasting his or her God-given talent. If you write, or paint, or dance, or sculpt, or sing, I suppose, someone will try to make you feel lousy about it, that's all. I'm not editorializing, just trying to give you the facts as I see them. I came through all the stuff I told you about, and plenty more I didn't, and now I'm going to tell you as much as I can about the job. As promised, it won't take long. It starts with this. Put your desk in the corner, and every time you sit down there to write, remind yourself why it isn't in the middle of the room. Life isn't a support system for art. It's the other way around. You're listening to a podcast exploring faith and fear, what scares us and what saves us. This is The Fear of God. Hello and welcome back to The Fear of God. And not just any fear of God today, but a very, very special fear of God episode here for you. Um, Speaking to you right now is one of your co-hosts, Nathan Rouse. Here at The Fear of God, we find the holy in the horrific at the intersection of faith and fear, dissecting what scares us in order to find what saves us. Typically with me is longtime pal, Reed Lackey. Um, He did say something about needing to go finish a book, and I don't know, he was... He had mentioned to me recently about working on the Twilight series, and I don't know, maybe maybe he was just wrapping up one of those. We'll, we'll find out in a minute, I'm sure, what exactly he wants to share with us in terms of what he's been reading. In the meantime, if you have not done so before, whether you've been with us two months or two years and have not done so, we would love for you to go to iTunes, leave a glowing rating and or review and or both. Um, let us know you're enjoying the show. Share the show with a peer. Um, it would just really mean a lot to us if you did that. Reed, you're here, buddy. Hey, hey man, how, 
Ooh, you've got that like just finished a book look on your face. I what what do you what were, what were you working on? Was it just like Don't tell anybody. Okay. Okay. But what I just finished reading. Fifty Shades Freed. You stole my that's exactly what I finished. <laughs> that's exactly what I finished reading. I figured. You had that look. Reading, yeah, I finished reading certain, Fifty Shades Freed. A certain glow. Look, it's it's exactly it's exactly what it needs to be is the problem. It, okay. it satisfies it, it's very it's a very you know what, don't knock it until you've read it. That's okay. the thing. I, I was one of those people that just like I'm just kidding. I've never I've never read that mm-hmm. book. No, I've never. Okay, I've your never secret's really safe, buddy. Okay, good. Thank okay. you. No, I've never. Okay, so no. In all uh, in all seriousness, no. So I was not finishing that book, but um, this is uh, there was something that I that I just recently finished reading, and uh, I'd like to you know sort of have a conversation about it if okay. you could. So what I just finished reading and uh, want to share with the world my thoughts on uh, are just just your thoughts. I mean, like well. Yeah, okay. at the moment, I'm okay. sharing okay. my thoughts okay. with you. <laughs> All right. Um, is uh, Stephen King's phenomenal book about the craft called On Writing. Ooh, that's and, a good book. And so right now, listeners, what you don't realize is that right now Nathan and I are uh, in the same room. First of all, which normally with each other. we're not with each other, right? Yeah, it was a little awkward when you came out after reading the Fifty Shades book, but you know, whatever. yes, yes. And then, uh, but but as a matter of fact, we are uh, not not alone in this room. I mean, there's there's lots there's lots happening here that that listeners can't and probably shouldn't. Well, why do, why do you inform them? So, because so I know so it's we, anxious. So um, so what we decided to do, listeners, um, we've made it now something of a tradition that when we have quarterly king, we invite our dear friends, uh, formerly of the body, the blood, onto the show. At this point, they're just honorary fear of God. That's right. Know. It's it's just they're I mean, they're in the fear of God club. So uh, we invite our dear friends along, and this time around, not only are Nathan and I in the same room, but they are all in the same room with us as well. Yes. So uh, I'm gonna give some I'm gonna give some introductions. I'm gonna uh, take a cue from one Mr. Nathan Rouse, and we are what we are gonna be discussing is we are actually going to be. It's a it's a pretty different episode for us. Uh, I hope will be a very uh, substantive one. I think it's going to be very fun as well. But we're going to be discussing Stephen King's On Writing. And um, so what I figured would be fitting is, uh, Nathan, you started the tradition of basically assigning uh, a a name to Uh each of the specific guests. And I figured what more appropriate name to assign to each of us here than as one of Stephen King's books. Oh, I figured that would be the saucy. I figured I that you would were be just the best name of Stephen King. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so ladies and gentlemen, uh, let me just uh, let me just run through the list of who we have here. This so, is exciting. I'm a little nervous. Actually. So, so starting straight He's off the bat, uh, we should. Bef- uh, he is he is not here in conversation, uh, but we want to send a special thank you to Mr. Jeff Hansen for allowing us the opportunity to come uh, to the cabin where he lives and be able to uh, you know, share this time together. But we are all in the same room. Very special, uh, unique weekend for us. Mm-hmm. Um, so not only do you have, we'll get to you know, Nathan and my moniker in a second, but first of all, we have with us somebody who is this amazing blend of just small town uh, charm and small town normalcy, but then... Every once in a while, there are some deep, dark, hidden things abiding below the surface that comes out in uh, really frightening and unsettling, sometimes confusing ways, particularly when you can't quite understand what he's saying. But with us, uh, we have in the role of Salem's Lot, 
Mr. Ian Olson. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Well, what's funny, if I can interject, I thought when you were introducing Jeff, who is, yes, who is being a wonderful host to us, I thought you were going to give him Annie Wilkes, you know, or, or Misery, you know. Like, he actually, had he joined the party, oh, he was going yes. to be the Overlook Hotel. He was gotcha. going to be shining okay. because he's putting us all Just up. Just as and, well. Yes. So, but, uh, Ian correcting Olsen, us you are, as we speak. You are, you are Salem's lot in this, uh, in this characteristic. And so, also, we have with us uh, a person who loves to, uh, he's... He's the compassionate contrarian. He is the one who always likes to, to have this uh, this very friendly sort of uh, charm and demeanor to him while he's tearing down the things you know and love. Um, <laughs> wow! And, and he is somebody who's in the best way opinion we all respect and admire, but he is unde- he is undeniably a fire starter, Mr. Blake Collier. Nice. Ooh, yeah. Nice. Right. I'll take it. I'll take it. I'm behind um, that. Right. Then, <laughs> I hate the MCU. Everybody else too, right? <laughs> fire guess starter. What? Guess what, guys? I also, I, I also dislike the DCEU. <laughs> That's He's, not a hot take. That's, That's the world. <laughs> You're just in regular company here. <laughs> He's an equal opportunity contrarian. Um, so, um, <laughs> so uh, we also have with us, uh, delighting us with his presence, but Sometimes, he, I mean, he can be a bit of a wild card. We've seen that on this weekend. Um, every once in a while, you're just trying to, you know, safely either get into or get out of the driveway, and then in comes some rabid dog. So in the role of Cujo, we have wow. Andy Whitfield. <laughs> our wild card, Andy Whitfield. Um, and, uh, and, and so let it not be uh, forgotten, even though you're very well acquainted with uh, Nathan and myself at this point, expanding generation after generation of uh, just incredible uh, insights and uh, just a rich, deep history of thought uh, and also some really uh, scary things abiding underneath the surface. In the role of it, we have Mr. Nathan Rouse. Wow. Wow. I was not expecting that. And and because... And because I, uh, I'm, I am the one that, and because I am the one that uh, just never seems to shut up and continues to talk on and on and on. The one that uh, probably everybody talks about, but is a little disappointing when you get there. I am the Dark Tower. So disappointing. So, um, so that is it, guys. Thank you so much for being willing to carve out some time in this weekend to have this conversation. A very different conver- conversation for each and every one of us. Um, again, on writing is not really um, something that is uh, would be in the in the scares category of our fear and faith conversation. But um, I, I really felt like all of us being in the same room, wanting to have a conversation, I felt like it needed something a bit different, um, perhaps uh, a bit more soul-bearing than even we are accustomed to, and I'm hoping that that's uh, where this conversation is going to lead, and hopefully a lot of fun as well. But before we get into all of that, uh, I'm going to turn it over to it itself, and, uh, and and why don't you why don't you take us through, like, just basically, uh, take us through the book. Take us through, <laughs> through, the, through the book. The entire <laughs> the book. Well, uh, everyone turned to page one. Right? <laughs> right. Right. Well, yeah, and well. and it and it is worth mentioning. We we've sort of um, uh, glossed over this a little bit, but you know these quarterly king editions uh, of our show are meant to be signature landmark works of Stephen King, um, and. You know, kudos to Reed. He initially pitched me on the idea, hey, why don't we do on writing as the next Quarterly King? 
I, in traditional Nathan fashion, initially said, you're an idiot. Um, and then I pondered it a little bit. I was like, you know what? You're not quite so much an idiot. Um, and here we are. And I think it was a really, a really stellar choice, especially this year, as we've been walking through uh, some of the greater and lesser works of Stephen King to, to really find ourselves where we're at. So... Um, feel free to impart any scares you found in the book, perhaps a certain uh, van accident, but um, this is going to be a little non-traditional in terms of our typical conversation, as we will primarily kind of exclude that. But I did want to spend some time uh, with everyone, just you know, some cursory thoughts. Um, had you read the book before? Um, what were some initial takes? Do your best to maybe avoid deeper waters at the moment, because we will certainly wade into those um, a little later in the conversation. But you know, if anyone wants to chime uh, chime in with some initial thoughts on just the book itself, we would welcome that. I'm Andy, first time reader. Of <laughs> <laughs> uh, anything. <laughs> wow. Uh, thought it was great. Really enjoyed it. <laughs> you were the first among us to finish the book, which I found very impressive. It's very important if you are going to read this book to listen to it because Stephen King narrates it himself and it sounds better. Then I don't know what I was saying with that, but um, first time reader thought it was great and uh, really got me thinking about writing and my own craft, whatever that may be, and just just interesting finding little tidbits about such a great writer's life. Yeah, no, absolutely. So this is Blake. I <clears throat> came to this book for the second time. I listened to it this time. Uh, and enjoyed, like Andy, I enjoyed listening to King himself kind of narrate his his own life because this is really, it's almost mostly memoir. Yeah, <laughs> which oh yeah. Is, which is fascinating for a book on writing. But the thing I like about this book and what I loved about it the first time I read it was how much grace he shows people who are trying to learn how to write and things mm-hmm. like that because one of the things that will make me not want to write anything mm-hmm. is people telling me how to write. Oh, <laughs> so, sure, yeah, um, yeah. And he's just very... Uh, open-ended he's like this worked for me doesn't mean it's gonna work for everyone but mm-hmm. here are some guidelines that i've used and, and that have been helpful for me and so uh, that still kind of stuck with me this time around um yeah so it's it's one of my favorite uh books on writing mm-hmm. you well, just air quoted yeah for air quoted. yeah, yeah <laughs> 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 what about you ian uh, I read, uh, this was actually the uh, last new publication of Stephen King that I read when, when it was new, obviously. Um, and then I had a really long uh, moratorium on Stephen King, I, I guess, for, for several years. So I listened to it at Reed's um, advice this time around, and um, I finished it on the flight that I shared with uh, Nathan Rouse. And um, hearing uh, hearing Stephen King talk about Nearly dying was especially poignant um, as I, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I heard some some podcasters say that once. Uh, as, as I was uh, as I was trying to stifle my uh, my fear of flying, mm. so just uh, really really uh, poignant. Um, that's better. Yeah, that's. <laughs> I'm you. sorry. I was, uh, I was reading my notes too quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> stumbled over that. Yeah, one. my bad. Um, I want to throw out here too, and 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 I've got several of these these notes worth uh, pondering here. But and even though I'm the one who said let's resist going thematic just yet, like I I read this initially probably I don't know ten or twelve years ago, and and this time around did listen to the audio and. 
I have encountered people over the years who, you know, are kind of puzzled by the affection for horror genre material. And especially, you know, you hear, oh, I'm reading new Stephen King. And really, if, if you're not sort of enmeshed in some of that world or really bristle, like, oh, it's too much, too scary. Listening to him kind of tell his own story and, and the intersection of his story with his own craft and success was a really powerful sort of experience. He's just... He's incredibly congenial and just affable human who has just found success in the way we all sort of pine for it, but really just doing what he loves. And, and that's a really, a really powerful testimony. And just in the book, he includes the story of he and his wife's uh, initial romance, and that's really lovely and sweet. And I don't know, I just, you, you come away from the audio version especially, even though I'm sure the text is similar, but the audio version, especially especially where he is providing the the inflection he would have provided, and and you know the tone of voice and the delivery just really really engenders me even more to liking the guy. And I don't know, I just really loved that experience. That was like if you read his fiction, he often will do these editorial sides that sound like Crypt Keeper in the Easy Comics, kind of like mm. <laughs> or some right. interjections like that. So. I've always had this idea of what he sounds like as he's writing it. What is he hearing in his head as he types that out? Mm. And so hearing him read it was slightly different from what I had anticipated, but mm. also no doubt like the authentic way to take sure. all these you know, little uh, editorial sizes that he's done over the last yeah. 40 years. <laughs> well, in the gravity, when you, know, when you hear him talk about his accident, and the, uh, because the book itself, for those who have never read it, please read this book. But um, the book itself is divided into basically three sections. The first section being what he calls CV, a curriculum vitae of his life and his navigation into you know, his first publication, the publication of Carrie. Uh, most specifically, that wasn't his first published story, but that was the, the thing that really changed his life. And so his early life leading into the publication of Carrie. The middle section of the book is the part on writing that he calls it Toolbox and uh, that's where he gets into the mechanics. Um, as he talks about in the introduction, he says, because uh, he's in a rock group with a few other writers, specifically he was talking, having a conversation with the writer Amy Tan, and she asked him what, or uh, sorry, he asked her what is something uh, nobody has ever asked you in any of these Q&As that you have. And she said, nobody asks about the language. And so for him... This was an opportunity basically to write about, as he puts it, the day job, the mm -hmm. language. Yeah. And, and, and that I found uh, unique and really refreshing to hear him approach it that way. The final section, which is really the briefest of the three sections, it's almost, almost could be considered an epilogue or afterward, is uh, called On Living. And that details what I had mentioned earlier about while he was in the middle of this book, he had his, at the time, it was a very big deal, very widely you know, national news. I don't know how many people, because it was it was almost 20 years ago now at this mm -hmm. point, so I don't know how many people are familiar with it, but he had a nearly fatal accident. He was taking a walk near his home. Uh, a reckless driver collided with him directly and nearly ended his life, but for a few uh, fortunate coincidences, he would have died. And hearing him to what everybody's saying, we all, it sounds like, engaged with the audiobook this time, which is, which is great, mm -hmm. because I do think the book is powerful. The very first time I read it, I... I read it. Uh, I read the text, but my preferred way to engage with this material now is to listen to him tell it. Because, as we've all basically said, like the the way the specificity of the inflection that he brings to it yeah. is so it's it's 
the equivalent to me of like a person telling either a gifted professor lecturing you in a classroom or, you know, a dear friend <clears throat> coming over and hanging out with you and, and mm-hmm. unpacking all of these things. Um, I have a few things before we get into like some, some more specific uh, thematic waters. I wrote down a couple of uh, perhaps talking points, uh, and then if anybody else has any, uh, bring them up as well. I loved the section. I'm just going to go kind of in my in my little notes way. Um, I loved the statement he made. He said, "Write with the door closed. Yeah. Rewrite with the door open. Right. Uh, basically, <clears throat> meaning in the context of the book that the first thing you do is for you. That's that's yours to do. And then as you progress with it and let it shape and evolve that you bring in other influences. And uh, so I just really, I, I loved that quite a bit. I loved his other statement. He said, do not come lightly to the blank page. Yeah. But I love his little rant in there where he's like, you know, this is not, you know, this is, I forget everything he says in it, but he's like, it's, it's not a, a, a funeral service. It's not all these other things. And it's not church, but it's writing, damn it. You know, like, yeah. and he said, do not come lightly to, to this craft, to this thing. Or just go wash your car. <laughs> right. <laughs> I have uh, three more quotes here. Uh, One says, uh, The basic rule of vocabulary is use the first word that comes to your mind. And uh, I have some more thoughts on that uh, that might be deeper thematic things but also could be cursory, but um, I'll come back to that in a second. And then two things kind of back-to-back says, um, I'm convinced that fear is at the root of most bad writing. Mm -hmm. I would say on that, uh, again, not trying to pivot too deep, uh, I would say on that, I'm convinced that fear is at the root of most bad anything, honestly, Yeah. Um, in any element of life. And then I love this other statement, uh, the scariest moment is always just before you start. And so mm. I love I love that. I have one more big speech that would absolutely pivot into themes. So, uh, does, that, but, uh, does anybody else have any anything that they wrote down or anything that stands out to you that really, um, before, we, before we get into that, that because uh, this cursory section is basically just sort of, I feel, unless anybody would feel differently, sort of a wholehearted recommendation for the book. Um, but did anybody else, anything else? Stand yeah, out? like I, so I really enjoyed the King tries to stress that there's a serendipity about writing. And so the, the toolbox is about having what you need in order to consistently enjoy that serendipity striking mm-hmm. um, and almost like clearing rubble so that that can come in and mm-hmm. it can be harnessed properly because it is. He, he emphasizes this is a craft that's right in the subtitle. So this is something you work at, but it's not something that is dreary work. So I like that um, near the climax he says, if you can do it for joy, you mm, can do it forever. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I, I, I just think that that is almost like at the, the hub of uh, a couple other, I think there'll be thematic things that we talk about later, but, mm-hmm. you know, uh, like th- that, that art is not for life. Mm. Or, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Life is not for art. It's the other way around. It's so I, I, I already screwed that up. No. Um, and I even hear that at the heart of him saying the first draft is the door closed. He's he's still situating that within life because being a writer or a creative type, we're going to expand that, is not this arcane, hyper individualistic thing. If, if it's not of a piece with your life, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. Um, and it has to. Um, that doesn't mean that every phase of that of that craft is always as open to the outside. Um, but at some point it has to, it has to become more so. Mm. And where it ends up eventually is 
it is now entrusted to lots of people. You're hoping that some of them will jive with it and identify with it and say, yeah, yeah, no, I, I think that is how things are. But in order to do that, it's kind of like you have to go on these successive waves and it starts off with you, your brain in one room without distraction. Mm. Not mm-hmm. to stay there. Otherwise, it kind of backfires. Right. And becomes too all-consuming. Yeah. I love the... Uh, yeah, I love some of the stuff that he had to say about the muse. And uh, just... <laughs> Cigar-chomping muse. <laughs> oh, man, it was great. It was great. Because it's this great visual. Usually we think of this of the muse for creative and output to be this real ethereal thing. Right. And I love that he's like, no, my, mine's a basement guy. You know, yeah, I, just, yeah. I, I love that. I love that about it. Um, I, I think there's just such a, there's such a wealth of impressively practical life wisdom. Oh, you know, absolutely. I mean, even if you just ignore the vocational creative aspect and just how we operate in the world and, and, um, although pivoting slightly to the vocational aspect, like one of the most indicting sentences in the text to me was, I think he's speaking of Carrie and his, his struggles making it through the writing of it. But he says stopping a piece of work because it's hard either emotionally or imaginatively is a bad idea. Mm-hmm. And it's an incredibly indicting statement. Yeah. Um, but there's just, there's just so much. I mean, I love, you know, he, he has this great tension between the what we the romanticized notion of of artistry and creativity Mm -hmm. and the blue collar work ethic and and that's almost best encapsulated i I wrote this note a quote from the book says we may be only talking about tools and carpentry words and style but we are also talking about magic i Mm -hmm. really really loved that yeah Mm -hmm. yes there's a, a section of the book, uh, and I think uh, it's funny because I remember, Andy, you and I very briefly chatted about this one section, but it's probably my favorite section, not only in this book, but one of my favorite things I have ever heard, uh, my favorite bit of wisdom that I think I've ever heard anywhere about anything, and that's the position of his desk in the mm-hmm. room. Um, so I would, I'm going to just read this one brief little section here. Where he basically, I'll set it up so that I'm not reading so much, but he basically is talking about how his desk used to be in the center of the room. And uh, he describes the desk and he says, now that same room, you know, his kids come up to, to watch a movie or play a game or eat pizza or something like that and hang out with him. And his desk is in the corner because uh, he's talking about this little Eve that's in the corner of his room. And he says, I'm sitting under it now, a 53-year-old man with bad eyes, a gimp leg, and no hangover. I'm doing what I know how to do, and as well as I know how to do it. I came through all the stuff I told you about, and plenty more that I didn't. And now, I'm going to tell you as much as I can about the job. As promised, it won't take long. It starts with this. Put your desk in the corner, and every time you sit down there to write, remind yourself why it isn't in the middle of the room. Life isn't a support system for art. It's the other way around. Mm -hmm. And I think that whole notion of... It made me think, and, and maybe this is you know a way to sort of dip our toes or go ankle deep into some uh, deeper waters of, of, it made me think about the ways in which we prop things up in the center that really should be in the corner. 
certain things mm-hmm. about the way we navigate our lives and, mm-hmm. and certain things that seem of utmost importance because they're the things that scream at us or that yell at us mm-hmm. with the most urgency for that moment. Um, and so we're putting them in the center when, as a matter of fact, they should be positioned in the corner, not out of the room, not, right, right. not uh, utterly ignored, but out of the center of the room. Yeah. And uh, it was just it, it was beautiful and, and inspiring and powerful to me. And I just and again, that phrasing of life is not a support system for art. It's mm-hmm. the other way around. Yeah. I just I found that so beautiful. I do want to, uh, before we wade too far into those waters, it did occur to me there are a couple scares in the book that if oh, uh, oh, I yeah, can yeah, yeah, deposit yeah. them for us. Uh, on an existential level is, of course, the, the uh, car accident, but I wrote down in that opening sort of probably 30 pages or so um, two instances from his childhood that are oh. traumatizing uh, if you've read this work. One is um, he had some severe... I don't even remember exactly what they, how they categorize it medically, but it's not, you know, um, ear infections per se. But he had to go to the doctor uh, at a much more rudimentary medical season uh, in our society, and he talks about having multiple times to have this fluid in his ear lanced out of his head, and it is a terrible, oh. terrible section to read about. I mean, goodness gracious, it. Uh, I'm cringing just thinking about it. Uh, but the other one is, of course, when he went out into the woods with his brother and needed to use the restroom and his brother would not take him back home uh, and encouraged him to go in the brush and to wipe himself with what he found there. And unfortunately, what he found there was poison ivy, which he did not know and used to wipe himself with. And he describes the physical response he had in the in the days and week to follow and that's yes that is traumatizing <laughs> and terrifying well and so if, if we're going to talk about scares i'll be i'll be really brief at the existential level he does he does not talk for long about alcohol and drug abuse right but he right. does talk about it and in keeping with his theme like he makes no claim that art saved him out of it. Right. Um, that the mystical power of writing mm-hmm. is what delivered him out of it. Instead, like he emphasizes, like he he pursued the craft so much, he can write whole books, and 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 he's gone. Yeah. Right? Like, I don't I don't remember writing that. He doesn't you know? remember writing Cujo. Right. That's so sad to me. And, 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 and he says to him, <laughs> I'm not important. <laughs> he's like, I, I like that one. I would like to have remembered, mm-hmm. you know, writing it. Um. And I, and I thought of that because he talks about wiping himself with the poison ivy in the section where he talks about it. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the first sentence of that section is he says, alcoholics build defenses like the Dutch build dikes. And something like when I heard him say that, I just kind of viscerally, corporeally remembered various things from my life growing up with alcoholics. And the way that he says that all these years later, here I am, I'm still wiping myself with poison ivy. Hmm. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's not terrifying. In uh, he has the taxonomy and dance macabre of like, well, if you can't, if you can't terrify, then scare. If you can't scare, disgust. You oh, know, right? And uh, but here, yeah, that's not that's not a rabid, huge dog. That's not a vampire taking over a sleepy New England town. That's just the infection of of life mm. and um, how that fear stays with him. Like he realizes, I'm an alcoholic. Well, I have to be careful then, mm. you know, because if I if I mess up. Yeah, and that and that hangs with you, and we obviously don't have his kids' perspective on it, except when he talks about an intervention. But I, I guess I I just felt that kind of existential nausea of like realization really sucks when it catches up with you. So his statement, like here I am, all these years later, and I'm still wiping myself with poison ivy. 
really stuck really stuck with me really bothered me hmm. um and uh but it, but i do like that there's not then this narrative of redemption by by uh yeah but the tommy knockers saw me through it or or right. something like that like right. what saved my life is tabitha yeah um and that still serves his overall thesis like um so he hears voice there, there's voices yelling at him to do various things mm-hmm. and one voice is yelling at him to love his family well and one voice is yelling at him to compose these stories and he should he should listen to both voices but if if the writing voice drowns out responsibilities to family etc then it becomes this monomaniacal thing and the desk is in the middle of the room where it ought not it needs to be supplanted right and like i like what you said like it, it should be in the room mm-hmm. like you're supposed to have the desk right right but it needs to be in the corner mm-hmm. so that you can watch the basketball game with with uh Joe, yeah, and, and Naomi later, or whatever you yeah, know. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So I kind of, kind of veered from scares there, but they, it's, it all kind of hinges together in this uh, section where he's finishing um, uh, CV, I guess. So. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing that I, I also tremendously appreciate about his, he's so honest, yeah, and forthright with, with really everything. There's, it does not feel. Uh, partially because he calls it out a couple of times. It does not feel pretentious at all. Right. So many writing books feel so very pretentious. And this one, to me, does not. It doesn't seem like there's an iota of uh, anything other than this is my experience of it and how I think you could do it better if you choose right. to do it. And one of the th- and and granted, there may be listeners who are like, well, I'm not really interested in writing. I I I, I may be giving the book too much credit but i think there's there's some fundamental things in the way he just approaches the sub his particular subject of writing that could be applicable like we've already talked about with the desk but there's several nuggets in this book that i think would be applicable much broader than just in the niche of writing as it were absolutely you and i were talking earlier like i one of my favorite takeaways from this book is when he says if god gives you the ability to do something then why in God's name wouldn't you do that? Right, right. So whether it's writing or whatever it is that you have been like given skill to do, do that, do the thing. Right. right. I, I want to throw out here because, um, and maybe it'll pivot into your thematic stuff, but there are a couple of uh, uh, non-on-writing texts that inform some of my thoughts on this whole thing um, because you just brought up a good point read of someone even listening to this conversation like, well, I'm, I'm not a writer or, well, I'm not a vocational artist or whatever, however you want to fill in that blank. Um, and is anyone familiar with Brene Brown? Familiar yeah. With her yeah, work? yeah. Um, uh, really amazing. Uh, you know, she's got a Netflix special right now. Turns out her TED Talk is one of the top five viewed in the world, which is insane. But um, my wife introduced me to her work, to Brene's work, and at a moment in my wife's life of recognizing who she would have said, well, I'm not a quote-unquote creative, or, you know, Nathan, you're the, the theater guy, the artist person, whatever, that's your thing. But this notion, and I think King would echo, that Brene teaches on, and I just want to share this here real quick, but in terms of just the creative life and someone who would say, oh, they're talking about on writing, I'm not a writer, I'm not a vocational artist, that doesn't matter to me. But, um, and this is just from Brene's own Facebook, but it says, here's what I've learned about creativity from the world of wholehearted living and loving. One, I'm not very creative, quote-unquote, doesn't work. There's no such thing as creative people and non-creative people. There are only people who use their creativity and people who don't. Yeah. Mm. Unused creativity isn't benign. It lives within us until it's either 
expressed, neglected to death, or suffocated by resentment and fear. Yeah. Wow. Number two, the only unique contribution that we will ever make in this world will be born of our creativity. Mm. And then lastly, the third point she makes is if we want to make meaning, we need to make art. Cook, write, draw, doodle, paint, scrapbook, take pictures, collage, knit, rebuild an engine, sculpt, dance, decorate, act, sing. It doesn't matter. As long as we're creating, we are cultivating meaning. And I I just think that was such a powerful sort of on-ramp for the person who even says, well, I'm not. This doesn't apply to me. And and that's what I think is so interesting and fascinating to me about on writing the text is, yes, he is discussing the craft of, in this case, creative writing, but the, it, it's, you know, the, the walls are so much further out for how this can apply to a person. Mm-hmm. And I would, I, would um, I, I love the, the close of that Brene Brown quote because uh, in the subtitle he calls it the craft. And I know that we can expand that word to mean like whatever you do, but I think that um, it's also interesting because um, art as is typically talked about now, like that's an enlightenment invention because artisan and artistry, they share the same root. Mm. And you get to a certain point before the 18th century where what is an artist, what is a craftsman, they are not two, they're not two dichotomous things. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, guy who, the guy who makes cabinet, who makes your chair is a person of inestimable skill right. who makes beautiful things. They have a practical component that make life easier. And the guy who pens epic poems also makes life easier in, in, in this way that is less like everyday tangible. But that used to be one larger concept at one point in time. And then it got bifurcated at this like decisive kind of like cultural moment for us as Westerners. Mm-hmm. And I, I have no illusion that King is trying to gesture towards that in saying a memoir of the craft. But I think that that speaks to how what we're talking about goes beyond if you write screenplays, if you stage uh, plays, if you write articles, you want to write fiction, you're a musician, whatever, you are you are a craftsman in life. And I know that that can sound horrifyingly pretentious, but I think that that I also think but it's true. But take it the next step. Like, it's not just the screenplay and the theater and the novel. It's the recipe. Yeah, I, no, the, know, right, exactly. It's the family. Exactly you know, model of, of working that out. You know, it's all these practical life things that we will often think and fall into this pit of, you know, well, oh, this is just this. Yes. This is just a thing. It's, yes. It doesn't really mean anything next to what you're doing or so and so. And we yes. have such a, a, a cult of personality in our culture of like celebrity and all this sort of stuff that, that furthers that bifurcation you're talking about where we just say, oh, well, that, that person's doing a thing I could never do. It's like, well, yeah. no, but you can pick out, gr- grab some friggin' crayons. And color a picture. Like, yep. like the simplicity inherent to meaning is is a thing I think we take for granted and don't take advantage of. Yes. You know. Right. So, like, just refuse to live in the wake of that bifurcation that Hume and Kant and everyone it, that's been trickling down to us. It's Desmond David Hume. De- yeah, ex- of course. Right, right, our right. mutual friend. Yes. Um, yes. yes. And, and, Literally. And, that was beautiful. Float down the old stream where this is all of a piece and, and creativity is is how you live. Right. right. Bifurcation. <laughs> Splitting a thing. Split, it, split in two. Okay. Split in two. Yes. So um, 
Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Could uh, I before we you know sort of pivot out of this, uh, Blake, Andy, did you have anything specific that hasn't already been mentioned that you wanted to speak just about the a part you loved, something about the the text of the book itself? Uh, I'll say that for for me especially, uh, it's there are a lot of cliches that get tossed around in, in writing books. You know, the only one that he kind of keeps going <laughs> is the. Um, read a lot, write a lot yeah, kind of idea, yeah. which every writer knows. That's part of it. Like sure. The more you read, the more your vocabulary grows, your ability to see how language is put together. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are other things where, you know, like write what you know. Uh, there's a whole segment where he's talking about this concept of writing what you know, and he's like, not all of us know that much about ghosts. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> right. Or, right. or about... Interplanetary inter- uh, space travel, or something right, like that. Right. So he says, so there's there's a lack of imagination that sometimes comes into the training of writers, mm-hmm. uh, the training of writing. And so uh, I, I enjoyed kind of him breaking that down, and and even with the the reading and, and and writing a lot element, he what he does well is he shows how that practically works out mm-hmm. in the life of of the creative. Um, and I mean, I'm sure we'll get into this later, but just the ability to show how creativity has a multiplicity of of outlets. Mm-hmm. It's not just writing. It's it's not. It's like what you were talking about. There's so many venues, and you don't have to be just a writer. Yeah, right. you can be someone who works on wood as well. Mm-hmm. Right. There's beauty in all those things that you do, and part of the reason why you put the desk in the corner is because there are various ways that you can enact beauty mm. and truth and and all these things into the world and not have them subsume life yeah. in that way. And so, right. yeah. Um, well, but I think what's so fascinating about that, you know, uh, I, I didn't know how I would come to this conversation and everything each of you is saying just gets me fired up. But like you mentioned, Blake, about the whole concept of write what you know. What is interesting is while on the one hand he he sort of casts shade on that notion at the same time there's this really beautiful section where and and I can't remember exactly contextually how he puts all these puzzle pieces together but where he then basically says I did write what I know mm-hmm. and and I love it's really heartbreaking but I love him tracking the the yeah. journey of Carrie you know it's like mm-hmm. oh I remembered these yeah. these girls I went to high school with and and I think this is this is a sharp turn into deep waters but I think there's something really lost in our culture. Uh, I don't love sweeping indictments, but here we are. Um, of just of just imagination. Mm-hmm. You know what's really amazing. There's also, in addition to his extrapolation of the Carey origin, he also identifies. I think it's another writer who talked, who wrote about. Uh, plumbing, inter, inter yes, intergalactic plumbing on some yeah, random mine yeah. station, yeah. you know, and it's like this guy knew plumbing, and it's and stuff like that, you know. I think a, a quote I heard or maybe said a long time ago was that certainty is the death of imagination, and I think we we are in a culture right now that is so black and white on so many things, mm. and and we ignore the the ligaments that connect it. You know, because that's where imagination is. It's, well, are you a plumber? 
or are you someone who knows things about plumbing who takes that knowledge and turns it into uh, uh, science fiction novels about mining, you know, plumbing and, and all this sort of stuff. And it's, you know, are you a person who writes about uh, a telekinetic wayfish put upon high school girl? Or are you someone who's like, you know what, these are things. And I love in the text where he even says, I participated. I, I got to own this myself. Right. Yes. He's like, these are people who I knew and let's create some sort of empathy for them, even though they do monstrous things. But I just, I don't know. I think if there's anything that scares me in our culture today, in our society today, it is this lack of imagination, this unwillingness to yeah. say, it's like, well, this person is A or B. Like, well, no, there's a, there's a lot of, there's a, there's a mile between that those two letters right. there, and that's where imagination is. Yeah. It's how do you creatively find solutions to problems of life, whether it's something simple or something grandiose. Well, and there's, there's, there's an issue of, well, he talks a lot at various points in this book about writing coming from the heart. Mm. The reason why we, why the phrase you write what you know is because everyone knows suffering. Everyone knows despair. Everyone knows sadness, happiness, mm. joy. Mm. Those are common denominators of the human, you know, the human situation. And so on, on a, on a very big level, we all know how to write the things we know about right. because we yeah. all know those things. Right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and so, uh, and it's not just like the, the art of plumbing or the art of coal mining. If you're writing about Ireland in the 1800s mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, it's about like story comes from the heart. If we know how our own hearts work, then we know how to make our characters hearts. Yeah. And so, um, I think that's that's powerful. The way he just keeps going back to the almost what you're saying, like this idea that the imagination is really ultimately putting ourselves in the place of another person, mm-hmm. and and so and recognizing that there are different people that have different struggles, different you know types of suffering, um, and our characters are the same way. They're people, mm-hmm. and we live in their skin, mm-hmm. yeah. and we try to figure out who they are. And what their passions are, and, and drive the story. So I'm gonna. Uh, I, this is not gonna be an abandonment of what I originally thought, but you, the, you follow the conversation where it goes. Um, so I'm gonna make a rather bold statement here, and see see what you think. <laughs> see what you think about Buckle it. Buckle up. Um, I would venture to say that not uh, not everybody obviously uh, puts pen to paper, but I think in a sense. Track with me for a moment here. I think, in a sense, we all are writers and inventors of story. Because something that you guys have been talking about, and I'm thinking about something. I was just having a conversation with uh, my wife and I were uh, talking with uh, some friends. And I was having a conversation where we spoke about... uh, I made a statement about my marriage that I said to, uh, to this friend... I said I made a decision early on, uh, so I'll set the stage and then I'll make my bold statement. I made a decision early on in my marriage that I would not hold my wife accountable to the fantasy version of her that I had in my head, both in the level of expectation that I brought from what I wanted her to provide for me or be for me, or uh, sometimes if there's a tense season um, you can go through, you know, playing out scenarios in your head, your mm-hmm. own imagination. And 
what's been fascinating to learn is that when you imagine a scenario and you see that scenario out in the eye of your mind, it often does the same thing in your body that yeah. it yeah. will do if you are actually in the situation. Hence, yeah. if I'm in the middle of an argument with Blake in my mind, when I see you again, there's going to be some tension. When you have done and said nothing, and so this is what I'm scratching at. This is the bold statement. I think that while many of us would admit, okay, I don't put pen to paper, I don't write, I think it is a pretty common, if not universal, situation to play out those scenarios. What will it be like with, in this situation with my wife? What will it be like in this situation with my family or in this situation with my job or, or such like that? And I think there's a level of intentionality that we could bring um, using some of these same sort of guidelines, navigation points of knowing how to blend the responsible path with the imaginative path and recognizing in our own selves the way that we create narratives um, that maybe aren't as authentic or as beneficial as the real ones that could play out if we were open to, again, it gets back to uh, writing with the door closed or rewriting with the door open, like be open to that kind of change and challenge. Um, and I don't know that that'll go anywhere necessarily, but it just, it really struck me that, oh, well, maybe, maybe we are all in a sense writers in that we fantasize and envision these scenarios that play out in our heads and then we respond to them. Yeah. Sometimes actively and sometimes passively, but we respond to them. I think that's the perfect, like that's the build off from what Blake had just said about, uh, we talk about imagination often and that has several modes and one that is sorely lacking right now is moral imagination. Mm -hmm. And so we are all practitioners of imagination. However much um, you want to, someone might protest, I'm not imaginative. We all are because we project, um, we, we project um, personae on the people. Right. We project how is this course going to go. And that's why all of us are always living in the future a little bit. Because there's always a projected self. And mm. we're playing out this garden of forking paths that we're on. How will it go this way? How will it go this way? And we don't really know the right. vast majority of the time. But we keep, um, we often will live within some of these scenarios. The ones we're often most afraid of. We're already planning um, counter moves. We're, we're planning parries and thrusts in light of what might yet happen. And a lot of the time it's with this squandered moral imagination. We're working with this, this caricature of people that we know or even that we don't know. Mm -hmm. you know but but we, have the, we have these stock characters in mind already planning on certain outcomes. And so, yes, it's it's not true. We are all imaginative because that is how we inhabit the future. And I, I really like that Emmanuel Levinas, he says in Totality and Infinity that what suffering is, especially when it's inflicted by a person, is it crucifies you to the present. So you you lose your openness to a future. Hmm. The the You have the inability suddenly to imagine an end to what's happening now. Right. And the inability to imagine yourself on the other side of it in a, in a different outcome. Right. And moral imagination allows you to inhabit the, the cliche, other people's shoes for a little bit. Right. And if you can actually indwell that, you can imagine alternative proposals for co-living, hmm. for cooperation, for, for, for ending patterns that have been destructive for you, for others. Right. right. The dearth of imagination is what leads to factions mm -hmm. um because because you have your story 
that you will you will die on this hill. And they have their story that they are prepared to f- fight to the living end, right? right? Right. And when there is not shared imagination that allows some kind of cohabiting of a larger story, and and I I have a little bit of postmodern suspicion of big stories. Mm. There have been plenty of big stories that have just sold us down the river. I'm I'm Native American. Right. There was a big story that pushed us out of where where we lived <laughs> right. for a long ass time. Right. Okay, right. Right. so I'm not saying buy every big story, mm-hmm. but maybe a big well, story. I mean, in your defense, that big story is still very operational. Oh, I have no illusion that it's over. No, we're living in the ramifications of it. Sure, right. But there are big stories that are monomaniacal, where Mm. three guys who are in positions of power crafted this story. But there are also big stories where people you can name, you know the faces of, and you know what they have experienced. Mm -hmm. They They are all contributing to this story, and therefore it fits the reality of what has actually happened better. No matter what you tell stories. Because if you're saying, no, bullshit, that's not what happened. Right, right. You're telling absolutely. a story. Right, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> if you're holding someone's feet to the fire, you are telling an alternative story. Mm-hmm. But I love the way you frame that as, as moral imagination, too. And, and when I initially brought that up a minute ago, piggybacking on Blake, what came to me was holy imagination. But, like, I mean, in Brene's sort of note there, she says one of the potential outcomes is it'll be suffocated by fear and resentment. Right, yeah. Like, we live in a society... It's Nathan talking here. Receive this says from Nathan, not from the fear of God. Um, that patent disclaimer for for whose uppermost leadership propagates fear, fear yeah. of each other, and resentment of each other. Yeah. And so when you do that, you starve and 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 suffocate imagination. Yes. Because instead of hey, here is here are problems that face a people, a culture. Um, Instead of that, we say we just get locked, we calcify into yeah. patterns uh, that have been propagated by fear and resentment. And, you know, that just shores up uh, higher division, you know, polarization, all that sort of stuff. And, yep. and I guess I don't want to go too far afield of this, but you read when you started talking a minute ago where I thought you were going, and I think the Germans that were there was you were talking about the stories we play out. Yeah. Um, I think. To, to make it very practical, you know, this sort of moral and or holy imagination, just imaginative living in general, is um, <laughs> on my flight here, I had downloaded it specifically to try to reference it here, but I didn't finish it, the movie Kubo and the Two Strings, which I friggin' mm-hmm. adore. Mm-hmm. But one of the things I love so much about that movie is it posits at almost every character choice throughout the film that's the choice of destruction or creation. You know, and and you got this child in it when faced with the ultimate adversary of his own sort of experience. The, it's represented by this guitar and the two strings of the title is a hair from his mother's head and the arrow uh, string or the bow string from his father's bow and arrow. Like that is this uh, instrument. And then on the opposite side of that is a sword. Mm-hmm. And he picks up the guitar and it yeah. just, you know... Uh, uh, is such an amazing tell. It's an amazing story to attempt to live into. You know, and this is what I thought you were going in terms of your relationship with your spouse and, and how we conduct ourselves is we have this divergent path at almost every moment. Right. You right. know, it, it could be super mundane, it could be super grandiose, but it's are you going to pick up the instrument of history and creation? Right. Your, right. your parental, where you've come from, and, and birthing a new thing, or are we going to tear down and destroy? Right. And we tear down and destroy, I think, far more than yes. we, we birth and give, give way to new. And yeah. I think that's really 
fascinating. I think I think when Ian was talking about the the skepticism of the big stories, part of me wonders if because at least in my head when you're saying that the big story is something that kind of lingers over us. Yeah, right. And, and and so in my mind, like maybe we don't need a big story. Maybe we need a transcendent story. And like you were saying, something that you can live into. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's all around us. We we all we all play a part in in the creation of this transcendent story. Right. But there's something that that guides like it subsumes. Yeah. Like yeah. All of our ideas, all of our creativity, all of our and so like maybe we should be skeptical of big stories, of big narratives that try to fit everything mm-hmm. into this box. Instead, we there's a lot of flexibility with a transcendent story. Right. Well, I, I mean, so, just earlier today, you yeah. Ian were saying how it is only the tiny things that affect real change. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. And, right. and I think that's right. important to bear in mind as we engage this notion. And I think. I think, honestly, that's the bill of goods we get sold left and right oh, in yeah. this country and in the, the church in this country, which is, it's the big story, it's the big story, it's the big story, it's yeah. the big story, don't worry about the little stuff, don't worry yeah. about the little stuff, don't worry about yes. the big story, the big story, and then all of a sudden we're like, well, what the hell do I do? I'm confused. I don't right. know. Yeah. I don't know a path There is nothing left because to Because no one has given me a, a memoir of the craft. Right. Which Absolutely. is, how do I freaking live a life yes. of, of moral imagination? Yes. Right. And, yes. And we leave each other empty-handed. And it, I just think, uh, um, if, if you're improvising... A Which bad I to do. Yeah, if you're if you're a bad improviser in, in an acting troupe <laughs> and you never ex- <laughs> that's all that's right. right. It's like Nathan sucks. We're, we're all Michael Scott way too often. <laughs> Hands up. Um, but you have to you have to accept right like overtures from other improvisers in the troupe sure. if it's going to go anywhere. Right. And that's impossible if if you are dead set on oh this is the cop story. So if you're Michael Scott, it's always the cop story, and you're the cop. Hands right. up, you got the gun. And without moral imagination, you can't take the... It might not even ultimately be a risk, but it always feels like a risk. Right. Like, okay, uh, Nathan's approaching. Let's see... Run! What (laughs) What the hell? Let's see how this opens up. Let's see how this forks now as he contributes. So any any big story that has no room to accept a fresh improvisation in good faith, like with integrity... Sure. Like, get rid of it. They, they, I, I got no room for it anymore. It's, right. it's too big to make room for. And yeah. and that phrase "in good faith" is something we very much lost hold of. Yeah. In our right. dialogue. Yes. Andy, you got a lot of loud, boisterous speakers around you. Are you sitting on some profundity that you'd like to? Some profundity. No, no pressure. <laughs> no, no pressure or anything. Uh, I just don't want you to be like these guys never shut up. No, <laughs> no I. Nathan keeps interrupting everybody. <laughs> well, I have a. It, unless you have something burning to say, I have a question for you that I'd like to start oh, with. Here we are. Um, so uh, accept, accept. we've we've already <laughs> we've already kind of begun to dive into you know what this what this book has the potential to make you think and feel for your own life and through your own navigation of the world. Um, for this portion of it, I submitted to each of you before we gather together um, three fundamental questions, which I'd like to kind of go through. Um, you know, for however long it takes to go through them. And, we, and it's funny because maybe because our minds were just sort of centered around this, but we're thinking about the stories we're living, the stories we're telling, um, what our story is uh, in big and small ways. And I do, I love so much of what's been said already about, uh, I don't know if I'd call it the skepticism of the big story, but basically like focusing back in on the little story of which you are a part, a participant. Um, so I, 
kind of following the cue from the book, dividing up his, you know, his biographical section with his more mechanical section, with his more uh, inspirational section, if you will. Um, so, Andy, my question to you is, and this will be the first of three questions that we sort of all round table around. Uh, so the first one is perhaps a bit pretentiously worded, hopefully not, but um, I wanted for each of us to just ponder for a minute in this idea of the little or big stories that we're a part of. Uh, so what brought you here doing what you're doing, and what do you want to see that become in the coming years? You and I got the opportunity to chat a little bit about that uh, earlier today outside the context of this pod, but um, how would you respond to that? Like basically, yeah, what, what brought you to the place that you are doing what you do, and what do you want to see that turn into? Um, I think just the desire to help people. Um, and especially teenagers and young children um, mm-hmm. understand their faith or um, be a I'm a youth t- pastor and also work in marketing and um, I, I it's something about just being there for for a group of people who I think don't get a fair voice mm-hmm. of, of what they get to hear as, as when you're when you're small, you don't you don't listen to or people don't listen to you, and mm-hmm. I get the beautiful opportunity to get paid to listen to those stories and to listen yeah. to what's going on with them. And and sometimes it's silly, like you know, my mom won't let me go out past ten o'clock on a weeknight, and I just want to go, mm-hmm. you know, to Sonic and do that. Or sometimes it's as deep as like. I'm struggling with smoking pot and I can't stop or, you know, I'm being abused and mm-hmm. I need help and I get to be a part of those moments. I get to be a part of, of I don't want to say that I make the change in the students or in the kids. I think that it's God working through me. Mm-hmm. Um, there's nothing that I can offer them that is just I, th- I think I can offer them what God has given me right and um, I that's just my craft is being able to do that and then as I've gotten to know this grace thing um, over the couple of years that I've, I've dabbled in it it's been nice to to impute as Ian would say <laughs> this this idea on a younger generation of just like, let's forgive let's you know they're they're going to be people who wrong you and a lot of times when you're a teenager a lot of people wrong you you know (laughs) you're constantly being wrong but being able to say you know i forgive you is very important and i don't i don't know what's brought me down that path and i know that um i was talking to nathan about it that my time as a youth pastor is is numbered in um, my age, I figure at about 38, you kind of age out of mm. youth ministry. And it's a magic number that just automatically well, show you the door. <laughs> <laughs> You're not relevant anymore. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, but I, I think that I'm not sure what the next path will be, but um, pouring into people is a big part of my craft, and I, mm-hmm. I think that that's just. I love it, and I don't mm. know if that's kind of answering your question. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely it is. 
Uh, well, I think I'm sorry. No, um, you. you. I, I, to to encourage you, Andy. I mean, I think you are. I, I applaud you. My cynical heart kind of won't permit me to go to some of the places that you're on just the the, the, gra- the ground floor of these days. Um, but I think there's such a important component of just relational dynamics that plays out there. You know. It, it, I think all of us around this table, however much we are, have been encouraged or, or even harmed by the church, can point to the value of those early relationships in whether it's youth group or whether it's just elder folk who were who were advocates on our behalf and who, you know, spoke truth and love to us and, and were just a listening ear. And, um, you know, I think in Brene's words, it's it's that's where the meaning lies. You know, mm-hmm. that is in itself art. Um, you know, Sarah Groves, uh, singer songwriter as a song, and I don't even remember which song it is, but the lyric is at the end of your life, your relationships are all you've got. And, and I think, you know, I mean, for all the, the stuff I've personally experienced from the church, like I can point to those years as, uh, those teen years, those young adult years, those formative times as valuable and important and, and meaning making in the midst of what can otherwise feel very calamitous. Anyway, just, I don't know, came to me. There. Yeah, no, 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 I absolutely agree. But, Blake, what would, you, what would your answer be? Well, my mom. Thank <laughs> 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 Jesus for a minute. Uh, JC. Yeah, JC. So, I, I come to writing uh, mainly nonfiction, uh, kind of a, a roundabout way. I randomly had blogs throughout my the last 10 12 years of my life and so i've been writing off and on for that amount of time and it's one of those things that i love i don't expect to ever get paid for it per se i mean that'd be great Mm. i did but it's not something that uh that's that's part of it so for me i have to get ideas out because like you were saying if they don't get out they're just gonna die Mm. and so that's part of kind of the suffering is that those those future parts of yourself seeing watching them die is is yeah. pretty rough so yeah. that's part of the suffering of humanity is watching us not seeing that other path and not always choosing the path we're on but seeing that other path and and and, and seeing how you could have gone you could have been there um it's 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 a type of suffering so yeah writing for me is something I choose to do whether I get paid for it or not. And so I've had to go through various forms of, uh, limiting myself in the sense that I had to spreading myself super thin. I was writing and reading and all sorts of stuff about various topics. And finally I just had to step back and say, you know what, what I enjoy writing about, what I, what I focus on the most, what I think on the most is, is horror. And so I'm going to write, about that uh, mm. to the point where I got rid of podcasts. I got rid of, you know, um, other interests that I had and, and focused on that writing. And so for me, I think where I want to go is, is I never have quite felt I've found my voice per se. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me landing at a place where I'm at peace with how I write and my voice is is where I, if if I achieve that in my life, 
I think I'll be good. Yeah. Uh, mm. So that's that's kind of the the high end for me of, of where I think I want to see it go. Yeah. Um, in the coming years. Understood. Um, yeah. Understood. What about for you, Ian? Um. I, uh, since I was a kid, I would write these like parodies of of things. They all these mashups of stuff that I thought was cool, and uh, I always envisioned it being um, really pleasant to have a vocation where I'm pumping out ideas. Mm-hmm. Because uh, I, one, one of my favorite, uh, it, it turned out not to be true, but David Foster Wallace was asked like why he wore a bandana all the time. The uh, real reason was because he was just anxious AF and was sweating constantly. So that, <laughs> that was soaking up. But what he would say to interviewers was like, well, it's to keep my head from exploding. And I... <laughs> And I like I've felt like that many times. Like I I've I've just compulsively like scrambled while at work to write down like this paragraph that suddenly is in my head. Yeah. As much as I am against the romantic idea, as King is against right. the artist. Right. Like it seemed to have some stock in it for a while because it feels like transmissions come in sometimes, yeah. Yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And then I have that agonizing like, but I gotta transcribe it precisely. And I and I've I've done that so many times and just felt that turmoil. Yeah. You said this more than once. I want to like encourage you that King of uh, King eschewing the romanticism. I, I I don't think he does. I mean, he says it's magic, and I want to encourage you because I think what he is dismissive of is the devil may care who gives who cares how well, my yeah. sort of ways of my artistry manifest impact others around me. Yeah, that I think is what he would. Challenge, but I think be romantic. Be a romantic, Ian. Let me be the one to encourage you. In but that. I was so romantic that I bought into you gotta suffer. You get like oh, yeah, yeah. right. That, yeah, well, that, yeah. That, that that's whole, what he. Yes, yeah. yes. yes. He totally that, dispenses that, that whole yeah. Yeah. Byronic hero. I'm yeah. Percy Shelley. Byronic. Oh, Byronic. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. I was like Bionic. Ironic. I don't know what you're saying. <laughs> and I, I just, I, I, I don't. I, I'm, I'm done with that. Right. Like I, I love the idea of. The closed door for the first draft. You open the door for the second draft, and I I think that I have like felt this refinement. Like I definitely want to I want to get out what's in here certainly, mm-hmm. but man I hope it has some utility for other people. And I know that plenty of people say that. Like yeah. it's not just Werner Herzog. Anyone, if you ask them, like I just hope it touches one person. Right. And, and I don't mean to totally poo poo that, but like I. Sometimes I don't buy it when people say that. Like, uh, right, right, right. Poo poo. Yeah, oh. come on. Ant. Push. You mean push. We all know what you're saying. Come Ant. on. Poo poo. <laughs> but I sincerely, like, I, I think that I, I wrote this down a couple months ago. Like, I hope that with what I make, I can help people live with themselves and with others. Mm hmm. And I, so I don't know, I don't have any illusions of, it would, it would be really great if I could make a living writing. And like my, my only forays so far have been nonfiction. I, I, uh, I spent, I spent years crafting this elaborate space opera, like 15 minutes in the future. And I pulled the plug on it when I realized like I have hundreds of pages of notes on how, on how the like warp drives work on, 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 on how, on how military campaigns are conducted. On a planetary scale, but who the hell is populating these stories? <laughs> right, you know, like right, at the right. end of the day, these aren't stories. Like all I am, I'm just, I'm just, you know, uh, 
getting off on yeah, on the sheer mechanics of right. yeah yeah king with it. Yeah. yeah for for sure like yeah but the but the starships are this big like this class oh man you know totally getting getting lost in that have you ever thought about selling your notes to someone else <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no they'd be like the Whoa. proxy right, right. the proxy world builder <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. and they'll be the consultant on the yeah. you can't do that they don't work that way. <laughs> but uh, I um, at the very least as sincere as I can be I hope that things that I make can be of use to people sure. to yeah. live with just how sh- like the world can be, mm. but also like not being utterly cynical about it. Like I like beauty happens, mm. and sometimes like right after like the most awful, terrible thing happens, yeah. And sometimes it doesn't feel like the beauty's enough to uh, keep it going in spite of or through the trouble. I just want to do justice to what is, yeah. is what I feel like, and that sounds grandiose too. So take that with a grain of salt. But as honest as I can be, that's how I feel. Yeah, understandable, Nathan. Read. <laughs> I passed. <laughs> um, okay, so no, I wasn't good oh. for real. Oh, I'm just, I'm just. Uh, that was, looking, was easy. I was looking to save you, and oh, then no, I didn't. No, I, was, I, mean, I don't want to. There's only one Pharrell. Only one what? One Pharrell. Oh right, <laughs> and I am not him. Um, goodness, I don't know. I mean, I have such a love-hate relationship with this idea of personal creativity or or creative personhood, if you will. I mean, on, on a pure uh, pedantic level, you know, I've got a degree in theater and I produce that occasionally, but I feel like there's so much more there and I feel like if there's any place I could indict myself, it's that I've always been relatively great with the muse aspect and terrible with the ethic Mm. Um, you know, it's like, oh, that's a great idea. I actually do think I'm a decent idea person. And I just, I do nothing with it. And, and actually when this finally airs, it'll be two months from 40 and I can look back at the last 20 years and be like, oh, you said you're going to do X by X yeah. and you're going to do Y by that point in time. And, you know, and I will say, um, it, we are recording in May and, uh, I did just, uh, about a month ago have a pastor in Charlotte reach out who knows my theater work and kind of generally knows my uh, uh, philosophy and, and he was curating some stuff, some writing material from some people and he asked me to participate in that. And, wow. and, and I kind of took it as this sort of like, okay, I, you know, because this may bleed into other questions you're aiming for, but I got emotional in interiorly a minute ago and may exteriorly here now but like as i listen to king's edicts of right with the door open or right with the door closed and right with the door open i think there's a large degree to which for a lot of my life the door has been closed yeah and mm-hmm. but it scares the crap out of me to open the door not necessarily maybe because of self-preservation and criticism fear of criticism but also just there's so many voices that are so um, there's, one, there's just so many voices, right? Um, right. Yeah. And and yeah. and there can be this very apathetic, well, who cares? You yeah. know, yeah. Uh, sort of, which again sounds self-indicting. You know, I, I feel like there's this um, again, maybe excuse, maybe maybe excuse making. I don't know, but you know, this way I've tried to figure out for at least a little while with this door closed, what is a practical 
creative life lived out mean, you know, in relationship and things like that. But, you know, one of these ideas I've had in terms of personal sort of artistic philosophy, uh, as I envision the, the writings I want to do, the, this notion of things I need to hear. Mm. And, and I think that's a real uh, powerful position to me individually of like, okay, it's not about criticizing you. It's not about criticizing these people. It's not about uh, uh, shaming X or Y. It's about here's, here are things I need to hear that I think uh, the Lord and the Spirit and Jesus' life and, and, and a life lived in this uh, American culture all swirled together have imparted to me. And it gives, it's basically in, in my giving myself permission. And, and again, will this manifest in this particular writings? I don't know, but in, as I envision it in my giving myself permission, surely there are others who struggle with those same needs to permit themselves X, to think a certain way, to feel a certain way, to, to have permission to be accepting of these people or those people, or, you know, to, to love those around them. Well, I, I don't know. I know it's kind of yeah. random, but no, I, I, I personally just really wrestle with that. Uh, and I also, and, and some of my own wrestling is I know, um, people, especially the, the sort of category I think I could potentially aspire to of, of spiritual writing. I know people in that world that are pieces of garbage and, uh, right, and, and it right. really rankles you to be like, I don't know that I want to participate in that mm. sort of, anyway, this is, this is a lot <laughs> sure, of work yeah. there. Like that's a lot that cannot be just sort of distilled down. Densely packed. Yeah. But I think for me, it's just trying to bridge that gap between aspiration and just practically lived out creativity. And yes, sure. really, really, I, although as I'm saying this, I probably make it a lot harder than it is because one thing that was really empowering to me in writing this piece for this pastor that I did was how much it wasn't easy in the sense that, oh, well, listen to these thoughts it just flow like, like butter. <laughs> but, but I think I, I, I impose roadblocks on myself in terms of, well, I don't have the time and all this sort of stuff, but yeah. I just like, I just made some time here and there and I found a few, and it was like a thousand piece thing. It's not or a thousand word thing. It's not like this massive tome, but I was able, once I got the juices flowing and had the, the, the hard deadline and, and someone I was accountable to, you know, yeah. I just sort of was like, well, I'm going to make the time for this. Uh, I, I worked on it, you know, kind of on my phone actually. Anyway, it was just, yeah. It was empowering to to feel like, huh, I, I probably made this a lot harder mm. in places than I needed to, and now I'm totally. just mad at myself for that. Yes, <laughs> yeah. always, yeah. always gonna have something to be mad. At. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, well, I think for my, I think for myself. Um, so I, I said I started saying something about maybe ten years ago, um, maybe even twelve to fifteen um, about myself because. A lot of people have seen I'm I'm not um, published in a traditional sense. Um, I've I've written a few screenplays and a, a few things here or there that are kind of out in the world, but I'm not a published author. Um, I have some people um, you know refer to me as writer. The moniker that I would give myself uh, in terms of responding to what you know what brought me here and what I want to see it move uh, forward, I would use the term storyteller, which has its own sort of pretension that comes with it. But what I mean when I say that is I find that in my own life, in all of my uh, meaningful relationships, in most of my trivial relationships, in every way that I navigate myself and my day-to-day -day living, 
the thing that keeps coming up is um, the my my placement in a story. It's it's part of the reason I got so galvanized by when we were talking earlier about the big stories and the little ones, and and so when I think about that, I, I think about the the what I want to do is I want to be able to understand better the story in which I'm living. Mm-hmm. I want to be able to articulate um, both the truth of the story as it is. And the hope of the story as I want it to be. Mm-hmm. And I want to hopefully inspire uh, in the whatever size sphere of influence that I have, I want to be able to inspire some provocation of examining our own stories, the big ones and the little ones. Because I feel like, let me let me hop off the pretension for just a minute, which I'm sincere with everything that I'm saying, but I just I recognize that it sounds a bit haughty. Um, the, the thing that I... I become very, very passionate about is the fact of there are so many people we were talking earlier about if you're not like a creative, if you're not like a king, if you're not uh, as in Stephen King, if you're not like a big celebrity, if you if you haven't, uh, you know, championed this big widespread successful thing, then it can be really easy to view what you do as either less important or not as important as the big people who are making the big changes. And uh, so one of the things that I talk about in my home a lot is because, you know, my my wife is a teacher and uh, she's a preschool teacher's assistant and she's, you know, she's this educator. Um, It can be very easy to be uh, somewhat a field like that. I come from a family of educators and a field like that, it can be very easy to be somewhat dismissive of that in the sense of it not being, uh, you know, grand work for which there is a lot of applause. Yeah. Um, the, the students come in, they spend about a year with you divided up in these two semesters and then they move on with their lives. And so it, it can be very easy to feel like everything is really small, but the, the weight and magnitude of the impact that you're having, and we've been talking about imagination, the imagination that she herself has to bring to navigating a situation, it, it, it might come home and express frustrations of a stressful day because this thing was happening with this student while this thing was happening over here, and navigating that in a way that um, that helps or navigating mm-hmm. in a way with that that just has a successful re- uh, resolution requires a tremendous amount of creativity. Oh, Andy, yeah. you were talking about the, the kids that bring their problems to you on both the trivial level and what most would agree would be a more seismic level. And the, the fact of the matter is that if it matters to them, they're navigating and dealing with it. You have the opportunity, the window in which to, to influence that particular moment and that particular situation. Um, I'll share this one brief story. When I went to college at first, I wanted to be a high school English teacher. Mm -hmm. And it was only through a very brief set of forgettable conversations that the path of my life completely changed. Um, I was talking with a professor because there was a role I wanted to audition for. Uh, in order to audition for the role, I had to drop out of a class that was required for my major and wouldn't be offered again for two more years. So I went to the professor of that class and had a brief conversation with them about like, I don't know what to do because I really want to follow this path. At the same time, I'm here for this other reason. And she had a three-minute conversation with me about it and ultimately told me fundamentally what would be rather practical. She was like, this class will be offered again. Is this play going to be? Like, you know, maybe you should go for the play. Right. And, And that was just the... 
it was a bit. I mean, I, I am so certain she would not remotely remember the conversation, but I remember it because yeah. I did audition for the play. I did get cast in the play. I mm-hmm. ultimately changed my major and got my major, uh, my degree in theater arts. It was a result of it. I met Nathan Rouse through the course of all of these different things that happened. And so yeah. my life irrevocably and fear changed. And of God, and here we are. And all this. <laughs> um, and so my life irrevocably changed. And I guess I just want to speak something to myself and to everybody here about like we would minimize and and diminish these small little moments, but sincerely felt and imaginatively navigated, yeah. they hold tremendous impact. That yes. unfortunately will be lost to us. The power and impact that, that happens, it will be lost to us. Like tears but, and rain. <laughs> but if we but if we if we choose Thanks. intentionally that was that was beautiful. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> but, if, but if we choose intentionally to navigate our lives that way, um, I think we can take great confidence and hope and value that it will, it will mean something, even if that meaning is forever you know, secluded away from us and from our understanding. So um, sort of pivoting out of that, I'll ask my next set of questions and prompt a couple of people. So this is general. We're scratching at the kind of thing that we would like to be, that we would like to see uh, what's brought us here, maybe what's hindered us from getting where we really want to be. But I love, love, love his metaphor about the toolbox and Mm -hmm. uh, what goes in the top level of your toolbox and sort of navigating down. I want us to take a moment, whether clumsily or not. Um, and, and navigate through like, okay, well, this is where I'd like to see myself. This is where I'd like to be. This is the type of man I want to be. This is the type of story I want to live. This is the type of whatever, fill in the blank. What are some things that we would have in our, uh, proverbial toolbox that would help us to get there? Um, I'm going to I'm going to go first not with the totality of my list but just to give you guys the opportunity to maybe think about the question. Um, so for me, one of the primary things to me is uh, is honesty. And uh, that does not mean that I am always, you know, this this bastion of honesty who is always 100% forthcoming or who's always uh, you know, even 100% fully truthful, but I think in my best days and in my in my most uh, successful navigations of a particular situation. I think you have to continue to be honest with yourself. Um, obviously, as people of faith with the Lord, you have to be honest. Uh, you have to be honest in your relationships around you. Like there has to be this level of honesty. And I don't mean, you know, to that degree where you insensitively hurt people because I just tell it like right. it is. Yes. You know, that's not the type of thing that I'm talking about. I'm talking about, um, you know, maybe maybe less honesty than sincerity, but it really is this whole idea of, of just telling the truth of a thing um, is, is really, really important. And that becomes difficult sometimes because you have to find the truth of a thing. You have to know that the truth of a thing is there. But I think for me, it is honesty in my relationships about what I'm feeling, about what I'm scared of, what I'm hopeful for, yeah. what I'm expecting. Um, and so, uh, you know, probably, I don't know if it would be second level or top level of my toolbox, but the first thing that came to mind for like how I get to where I want to be is uh, maintaining this sense of honesty in my relationships, not being fake or phony with the people that I interact with, uh, maintaining a certain degree of consistency. Like I, I'm just, I'm telling the truth in whatever arena that I'm in. The truth as I understand it, as I try to live it, all of those sorts of things. So honesty would be uh, one of a handful of tools in my toolbox. Does anybody else have one that just immediately come to them? Yes. Go. 
I saw everybody else about to speak, and I'm just like, no. Oh, uh, now it's my <laughs> turn. Me. It's my turn. What's the tool in your toolbox? Uh, put the spotlight on me. Um, uh, something I wrote down that I, in my understanding of your question, was just openness. Um, I think, like you and I were talking the other day about just sort of perspective conscientiousness, and, and I feel like what because um, because like you read I studied theater and, and which is not an <laughs> academically heavy sort of field per se but you know what I what I sort of didn't um, my perspective wasn't broadened because I learned about remote sort of cultures different than my experience my perspective was broadened by theater by mm-hmm. reading scripts and being in plays and inhabiting characters who are different than me and, yeah. and mm-hmm. how that, gains you empathy and, and helps you sort of comprehend, um, you know, your death of a salesman's of, of how do other people's stories, how do they operate and live in them? And how does that help me broaden my understanding of just people around me? And, you know, I feel like for me, as I engage, whether creatively or just in life, just that openness of spirit, that openness of heart, which I do feel is sorely lacking writ large, but, you know, was listening to recently, uh, on the Bible for Normal People, they had Austin Hartke, who is uh, an ad- activist and a transgender person himself, but had this whole conversation about mm-hmm. being transgender and being a Christian and listening to that conversation. I was telling my wife about it. I was like, this was so important for me to hear. like mm-hmm. Because even as someone who tends to have a bit more quote-unquote liberal sort of theology occasionally, the value of hearing a conversation with someone who is not like me and who and he, who even take a step further, much of the church would castigate mm. um, was was uh, thrilling is a strong word, but it was so resonant and important to yeah. for me the, the person who would consider themselves open already just to hear this person's story yeah and be like wow that's a really powerful way they engaged their faith it was really lovely because it was it was amazing I was telling my wife this like what's really fascinating about this guy's story is he came out once as homosexual. He came out again as transgender and both times was sort of uh, ostracized from church. Mm. And he said, but, but I'm just compelled by Christianity. So I can't really leave it alone. So I've, I've found a way into it for me. Mm. And and it was just a really beautiful story. But uh, Richard Rohr in a recent, one of his homilies was talking about, and, and this is tying into openness and then someone else can take the baton. But and I would echo this, but but he put great words to it. Um, he was telling the story of traveling with a Mexican peer. He he his church is in New Mexico, I think. Um, and the Mexican peer into Mexico, whose mother had died, so he was journeying with this friend to be there for this. And he's recounting this experience. And from his pulpit, he said he was talking about perspectives and openness, and 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 yes, indicting our sort of current culture, but. He said, if you don't know African-Americans, I don't want to hear your opinion on African-Americans. Wow. If you don't know gay people, I don't want to hear your opinion on gay people. But just rattled off this list, and it was just really powerful to me of like, yes, that's exactly the pitfalls we've fallen into, this calcifying of like, well, here's my border, and here's where I'm safe, and here's where I'm comfortable, and you over there, you're different, which means you're strange, and I don't want to comprehend you. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's this real closed-heartedness towards that. And I think for me personally wholly imagination 
is initiated by openness to others' experiences and perspectives, and, and that's part of the toolbox I try to carry around. Yeah. So I'm going to write off of that a little bit. Um, specifically around horror and writing nonfiction about horror. Horror as a genre has gotten to the point where it's almost become a genre that eats itself. Mm. And so with the inability to like bring in new, new blood into mm. the genre... Every one of those stories gets very stale. Yeah, like it. It it's basically just a echo of something that's already been done before. And so, I've I've talked about in articles and things like that about the need for diversity or an openness to other voices because I don't know the plight of someone who is African American mm. or mm-hmm. female or anything like that, and the nightmares that they have, mm. right, can be super compelling both as story and as experiences that you, you listen to and you take in and you, you contemplate. Um, I'm tired of white man stories. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. They're, they've been done to death. Uh, and, and they're all just basically versions of kind of maybe three or four, uh, you know, base nightmares. <laughs> and yeah. so, uh, to, to, so the openness aspect, um, I'm kind of going off of Nathan's concept is, for me, a toolbox for me is both listening or, or wanting more diversity in the genre so that my imagination can be enlivened by mm-hmm. it. And then second off, to go back to those other narratives that have been played over and over again and seeing a diverse opinion on those narratives, mm. both critically and creatively. And so I think it's important to both because I, I read my peers, you know, I read your stuff. I read uh, other people who write about horror and I like to hear diverse voices. And because I'm stuck in my own ideals about how I look at the world and to break out of that and to be in the skin of someone else for even a short period of time can help my brain become alive again mm-hmm. and, and stretch off in ways and be challenged and be moved uh, to, to, go, to, to think about things in a different way and, and to go outside myself and my limited perspective as a singular human being. And so mm-hmm. uh, that's, that's big for me. I will also quickly say that the best piece of advice I've ever gotten from anyone was a, a painter, a friend of mine back in Emerald, Texas, and I will just let this sit there. Not going to expand on it because I think it's just great by itself. He said, you know what you believe, Blake. Now write like you don't give a shit. Mm. <laughs> and it's, it's true. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. Can you unpack that a little bit? <laughs> <laughs> uh, always there when you need it. <laughs> Andy, Ian, Ian, Andy. Do you want to go or do you want me to go? Go, Andy. I want you to go. Okay. Um. Mine's a bit more, well, I say practical, but I'm bipolar too, and I have really low lows. Mm-hmm. I have, and but when I'm manic, I'm manic. It's mm-hmm. really bad. And but over the past few years, I've been able to get medicated, um, mm-hmm. and I've been able to easy come out and be normal. Or I say it's not. I don't want to say it's normal. I'm able to be a person 
who doesn't experience the very low lows and sure. some of the high highs. Um, and that and therapy as well um, has helped me with that. So I guess my toolbox would, would be just this, this medication that puts me in a place that I can sit and have conversations with people mm-hmm. and that I'm able to get out of bed or I'm not like thinking I'm Superman sure. and being able to run around and go, let's spend money. Let's do no. it. <laughs> you know? Show me those receipts. <laughs> Send that back. <laughs> but yeah. um, in my toolbox, it would, it would just really be stuff that helps my mental health. And what King was writing, you know, like art doesn't have to come from, you know, this, your, you're hurting. Yeah. You, it doesn't have to come from like this bad pain, and you I, like I don't have to. I'm not an artist because I have a mental illness, mm. and like I I can only if I'm not medicated, then it's ruining my art, and I'm not going to be able to give people the real view of everything right. that you should right. hear. Um, and um, being able to be on normal normal out is is really great for my toolbox because I'm able to think rationally i'm able to stay on task i also have adhd and so um so my toolbox is is just a good psychiatrist and um and medication that helps me function well i think to broaden that a little bit too andy i would i would uh throw there too just the notion of self-care yeah like Mm -hmm. especially in these days whether you deal with the specificity of the things you deal with or whether you're just trying to be a person navigating this crazy world we're in at the moment. And I was sharing with a peer on social media recently who was clearly struggling with a lot of the policy decisions that were being made. And it's a, it's a woman and, and she was just, just vomiting these things out that were, were clearly from a place of pain. Mm-hmm. And I reached out to her. I was like, you know, activism does not have to circumvent self care. And like your, your anger is right. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe even righteous, but, you, you have to be in a place of health yeah. or, or you're just going to get taken over yeah. by mm-hmm. that. You know? Right. Anyway, right. thank you for sharing that. that was yeah. Really good. I, I love what you said too, because we've both, we, we've all been expressing what, you know, is, is something that we would put on or something that we would use. And what I love so much about your answer is, is something that, um, as well, and as you said, it is quite practical, but this is something that, uh, that I need someone else to provide for me in some capacity. You have, you take it responsibly, you, you use it in a way that is going to benefit you. But, um, I just love the, 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 not only the idea that I just, I can't do this alone or can't do this on my own. And the, the level of humility that that brings, I think is very wise. And I think is really crucial to understanding. Yeah. know that I think crucial to really anybody's toolbox for navigating this sort of on living thing would be the understanding that I can't fly solo with this. There will be things that I won't be able to provide for myself that when I'm willing to allow them to be provided for me, it will, I will then be in a place where I can really produce some good. And I I find that beautiful. Mm -hmm. I think that's really beautiful. (laughs) All right, Ian, you're up. Uh, So summative as I, I, I I agree with what y'all y'all are saying. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Next, next, what's your final question? <laughs> and I think that like my truest like first answer, mm-hmm. like go go with what comes to mind yeah, first. Vocabulary is the first word. I th- I think that I want to say friendship, mm-hmm. and I want to. I don't think that's a small thing. Like I'm thinking of that in terms of. 
it, the relationships that I have. Like I, I used, it wasn't that long ago that I had this almost total constipation at the keyboard, like mm-hmm. almost this borderline paralysis. There was like a couple of years, like in Minneapolis, where I had like I had to pump out essays for class in in order to get them. It got brought back to me in red ink, like too liberal, like, and I'm like, dude, what? Are you, do you know who you're talking to? No. Um, um, but I, I've 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 submitted like ten thousand words this past month. It, it's just, it's just like it's suddenly there, and I I have to attribute that to like I have friends, and I have an openness with them, and I have a freedom to be who I have been given to be. And, uh, like, Blake and I, we have a circle that, um, like, we, we tell each other, like, projects that we're going to work on, and we pray, pray for them specifically. And I, and I think that that has, like, yielded real, like, dividends empirically, um, g- given this, like, thawing of this paralysis that I've been experiencing of late. But uh, um, friendship, I would expand even into what Auden, my go-to, you know, he says, like, to be fully human, you have to, you have to be able to break bread with the dead. So, like, I count Auden as one of my friends. I have, I have gleaned so much from him for living. Not just how I want to employ words to do justice to reality and capture beauty, but I feel like I've just, like, possibly grown into a better person who can love better because of my friend, mm. Wiston Auden. And I count like Lewis in the same capacity and Tolkien, like but by reading their letters, and and, and and I know that it's a secondhand. They're not, but I think it counts for something. I think that I think that communion still happens that way through this textual, you know, mediation. I've I've learned so much from Tolkien, from Lewis, and from others. And without that deposit, I I think that I would not be able to have even the beginnings of an openness to, yeah. towards another perspective. Sure. Much less being able to empathize with it, much less being able to like distinguish like I have no doubt about your sincerity. I'm not sure that you're right about this component of it though. Right. right. Um and I I I know that I've picked up those skills from reading guys who are long dead, who are very unlike me. Mm. Um uh, Thomas Aquinas, his environment is nothing like mine. Mm. There are not stakes for him in um thinking like long and painfully through all the dynamics and particulars of how to articulate this one um, datum. And the same goes for Augustine, Cyprian, a whole bunch of guys who are not white, mm-hmm. who, who, who do not pen a single one of the words that they write in order to reinforce a status quo ideology. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, so I can... Maybe there's a conceptual overlap between one thing Augustine says and what John Piper says. But I guarantee you that Augustine doesn't stand to gain from it socially the way that John Piper does. <laughs> and that's, and that's, the, that's the difference, right? So that, that means that it's coming out of solely conviction from Cyprian or from Chrysostom or something like that. Right. And I know that because there are ascetics, like the Desert Fathers have no social capital to gain by doing what they do. They are not participating in um, an, an empty and death-dealing social organization. And they are not trying to back that up. So I want to learn from them. Mm-hmm. And I, ha- I, I have learned from them. I want to continue to. I want to continue growing from that friendship. Yeah. Because I think friendship encompasses not only 
like these people that I am now sharing a room with for the first time. Mm-hmm. Okay, which is huge for me. Yeah. But also these people that I, the, the dead that I break bread with, mm-hmm. and one like I'm I'm not going to ditch them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like there are other drawers in the toolbox that open up because they're showing me. Mm-hmm. And it, and sometimes it's hand over hand. And if I don't have that, I I'm the poorer for it. It reminds me a lot of the, you know, obviously you referenced earlier, King says you got to read a lot and you've got to write yeah. a lot. So there's there's not only the practice of whatever it is you're doing, the day-to-day practice of it, but the absorption of what has been done before yeah. in any avenue with mm-hmm. the the craft and the daily practice of your attempting to do it for yourself, whether yeah. that be uh, ministry to people, counseling to people, writing um, storytelling, uh, friendship, whatever it is, absorbing what has been done before, I think is is vital. And uh, I know we're uh, probably going to try to wind down this conversation here in the next little bit, but um, the final question that I had sort of pivoting out of that is, and, I'll, and may, I'm, I don't know, maybe this is uh, too big for us to enca- encapsulate down in one space, but so the question as I wrote it is, why does it matter to you if it does whether or not these things see their fulfillment, it just basically we these we, things the toolbox things we've discussed. Yes, the the toolbox the 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 openness the um, the self care the friendship uh, the honesty. Like, why does it matter to us that these things see their fulfillment? We don't have to go in the exact same order that we did, but again, for the opportunity of a moment's digestion, I'll I'll go first. Um, basically, that. The reason, the reason it ultimately matters to me that I maintain this degree of honesty in my life is I want to be able to look back and recognize that I did everything that I could um, to be known, not because I need to be popular. I think there's a difference between being known and being popular. I don't have to be popular, um, but I would like to be known. Anyone who knows me, I would like them to not have a false impression of who I am or of what I want out of life or what matters to me. Um, it, that is important to me whether I'm dealing with my son or my wife or my friends or my peers at work or um, my the, the employees at work. I, whatever, uh, my church friends, whatever avenue I'm in, it matters to me that um, that again, that I that I be known, that I not be a, uh, a mystery as it were. And subsequent to that, that I know as much as I can about other people. Not in that sense, again, that I need to hear, it's not a a gossipy thing, Um, but just I'm seated at a table with four other individuals. This is, uh, with the exception of Nathan and myself, um, I think this is the, uh, and you and Ian have uh, been together before, Blake and Ian, um, but this is the first time, this this five, uh, these of us, this is the first time we've all sat in a room together um, and so it's important to me that in spaces like this, that there be this um, sort of knowledge intimacy that is, uh, well, and uh, it's funny, I'm, I'm trying to be so in such a way that it won't come off pedestrian in junior high school, but, you know, uh, physical intimacy in the Old Testament was referred to as knowing. Right. Yeah. And, and I, I think that's another thing to me is I think ultimately that is what I'm after in these is this this sort of shared intimacy of the spirit mm-hmm. that says like okay with the, I uh, I know you um, yeah so that because if because if I'm known 
then the people who know me will have the ability to tell me when I'm misstepping, will have the ability to guide me back to where they know that I should be and when I'm at my best because they know me. Um, if I know others, then maybe I have that ability to, to speak something into them that would do the same thing. And that's why intimacy and honest intimacy is, is important to me is because that way you can tell when something is gone awry or when somebody's struggling with something alone. I'm not going to get us off on a tangent, but so many people struggling with uh, secret pains and secret discouragement and suicides on the rise and, and things that are, and even for those who don't do harm to themselves, um, people carrying burdens of tremendous weight and power. Mm -hmm. And the more we are, and I know for myself, when I feel the most discouraged or depressed, it's when I feel the most alone. Right, yeah. Not that people don't know my name or that people wouldn't answer my text message, but that people don't understand. And so that's the thing that I feel like I'm often seeking in my honesty, in my, my path, if you will, as a storyteller, is I want that intimacy to be, to be known so that, uh, yeah, just so that in whatever capacity somebody understands to a degree and and that's why it means that's why it means so much to me these things that I'm these things that I'm pursuing I want to I want to go right sure, after yeah, you because yeah. like it's just I feel like a single thread um I desperately want friends like that that's the longing of my heart that I can remember like for the for the longest mm -hmm. and that's what I that's the reason that I'm a five-year-old and watching Ironhide and all these Autobots die in the original Transformers <laughs> movie is so gut-wrenching. Like, these, no, not these guys. They were friends. Like, I've been with you guys and now you're just gone, you know? And, and that's like... Ian uh, Olsen, roll out. <laughs> <laughs> just the idea of like finding your crew mm. where now... Your car, if you will. If you will. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> um... Whether so, whether it's lost content, content, right? Yeah, yeah. thank you. Mm -hmm. Whether it's lost and it's 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 these people, mm -hmm. um, and this is where you finally come into fruition, begin to come into fruition as yourself, and vice versa. It's it's right. only it's only right. it's only together. Better together. Right. Down down to Avengers and all that. Like all the all the layers of geekiness aside, what it comes down to is like okay, so these people, like you're saying, I, I want to be known. Mm -hmm. And known and, and and that's why grace and truth is so important. Mm. That's in John one. It's like he's full of grace and truth because normally when people know the truth about you, they could give a shit anymore. Mm. Like, well, now I know what you are, mm. and I'm going to go this way now. Yeah. But Jesus Christ is full of grace and truth. Mm -hmm. Like I, I know I know all about you. Right. And I and I want right. you. Mm -hmm. And that's enormous. Mm -hmm. I I can't think of a ton of people mm -hmm. that I can see with my eyes and touch who are going to do that same thing. Mm -hmm. And that—that's what I've wanted as long as I can, long as I can remember. And I think that that even Lewis, when he talks about friendship in uh, the Four Loves, mm -hmm. you know, he quotes Emerson, and he's like, "A friend is, you know, what that all is all about is that—that's the person that you look to, and you're like, do you see the same truth? <laughs> and there is nothing more magical mm. and more mm -hmm. fireworky in your heart than that." Right. Because, and, and he's like, I thought I was the only one. That's how Lewis elaborates more on it. I thought I was the only one who mm. noticed that or felt that or that resonated with. And when you find, like, it's not, it's not just you. Right. However many it is, if they exist, like, this is all worth doing now. Mm. Now, we, let's, let's get down to business now. 
because you found your kata. You, you, you're, we're assembled. Let's go. Right, right. You know, right. like that. That's the sine qua non mm-hmm. for me. And 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 down to what I was saying, like I hope something I make like does something for someone. Right. I, that's what I, I feel like. Okay, I. I'm never 100% happy with anything, even when it's it's edited and it's it's and it's right. posted. Right. I'm like, I still could have been better. Mm-hmm. But every time someone was like, "This," right? It's right. it's not a, it's right. not an ego. However much the ego stroke is there, because I'm still a fallen human being. Of course. What I'm aware of is like, yeah, because I, I know too. Mm-hmm. That that is what the 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 communion mm-hmm. is about. Yeah. So that that's it for me. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Anybody else? Blake, why don't you go? <laughs> uh, money. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Nah. All uh, this time. <laughs> <laughs> because it's working so well for me, right? Right, yeah, yeah. Um, you do you. So, I think, I mean, I would, I would, I would also agree with both the friendship element and, and the being known element. I think for me, like, the, the most joyful I've been outside of community just just a personal joy is when I walk into a bookstore and find some random obscure author and I read it I'm like my world is shifted mm-hmm. like it's just mm-hmm. like who is this person yeah that's no one's heard of or very few people have heard of and I just happened to walk in and grab it and read it and it shifted the way I viewed everything. Yeah. Right. Right. I mean, there, there, are, there are lines in certain songs that lead to philosophers that I've looked up and I've read their stuff. And right. I'm just like, where were these people in school? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, right. Right. and really, this is, this is a little egotistical, but I want to be that guy. I just want to be the obscure person. Yeah. That is largely forgotten, but there's that one person. Right. Yeah. Who comes into the bookstore and finds some shabby, like used copy, and mm. takes it home and was like, kind of like, like what you're saying. I had some of those same thoughts. Yeah, yeah, yes, <laughs> yes. Or, right. or for for that instance, you know, this this guy, if we we're looking at the toolbox that I that I brought up, is this guy was willing to go outside of his, hopefully his comfort zones of his, the strictness of his faith or things like that to to ponder other speculations or different voices and, and all these things and just to say someone would someone that is completely different from me takes picks that book up and reads and says I feel like on some level I'm being heard mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, even from my very I'm like the epitome of privilege <laughs> and yet I was willing to listen, so so hopefully God is able to work through me in order to allow people to to be heard mm-hmm. and 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 to recognize that no, you're not crazy, right? right. To reveal you've been listener. gaslighted a long time, but you're not crazy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so, just I have no I have no pretense of of being a um, a Grisham or anything like that, like. I don't want that in the first place. I don't. Mm. I don't really care. I just want to be her. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But I do want to be that random obscure book that that is out of print. Like a Nicholas Sparks. Yeah. Something like that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. 
I basically write the same thing over and over. Again. <laughs> <laughs> There's a beach involved. Yeah, somehow. Exactly. And death from <clears throat> cancer. Yeah, murder mystery. Rich <laughs> years in the movie. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, I've never seen or read <laughs> Nicholas Sparks, but I could just sort of outline it. We're sorry, <laughs> Nicholas Sparks. We're very sorry. <laughs> we know you're a listener. We just lost you. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's 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 just that I I've been I've been moved to tears and brought to joy by by those finds, those small obscure finds, and and I would be most overjoyed looking down from from whatever heaven it is. Mm-hmm. And just seeing some person randomly pick it up and say, and have a moment of joy and discovery, yeah. and yeah, that would be. That's that's why I do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. totally. So. Andy, you're up, bud. Can you? <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while since the question was posed. It's like, can you repeat the question? Of your toolbox. Yeah, I'm yeah. sorry. Go ahead. Uh, so yes, uh, why does it matter to you if it does that? Whether or not these things see fulfillment in your life, the tools, yes. uh, the, the tools, tool you the outlined. purpose, yeah, the, yeah, the things that, yeah, the things Any you're pursuing. What we talked about, yeah, either of those things you're pursuing. Um, I think so. I can be happy. Mm-hmm. Um, these things make me happy, and um, when I'm medicated, I'm happy. When I'm working with teenagers, mm-hmm. I'm happy, mm-hmm. and um, I when I'm happy, good things happen around me and and I just I if the tool if in five years I'm happy and content Mm -hmm. then I've accomplished what I want yeah so yeah simple and small names no that's it yeah Yeah. no it's honest absolutely absolutely Mr. Rouse hmm um, why does it matter to you fulfillment of this thing? I, I offered as my toolbox aspect openness. Um, and if the inverse of openness is a, a closed offness, I, to me, that's where decay lives. Mm-hmm. That's where mm-hmm. rot breeds and corruption grows, like constantly in inward facing. And I think, in my sort of limited, you know, theater degree guy kind of perspective, the aspect of Jesus most worth emulating is pushing past all the things into vulnerability and openness. Mm-hmm. And, and that as I sort of survey our culture and, and this, um, there are high profile instances of career loss that happen or threat of career loss or threat of loss period that happen to high profile people who thrash under that threat mm-hmm. in a way that's disheartening and troubling. And that's, I'm intentionally being a little vague there, but the point being, I feel like inherent to life to a degree is some aspect of suffering and, and we either close ourselves off to that and risk never feeling anything mm-hmm. It's very haunted, uh, haunting of Hill House sort of idea here. Yeah, but yeah. we either do that or we just will our we we will forward. It's forward facing. Openness is forward facing. It is, um, you know, that city on a hill kind of ideology of of risking exposure, being exposed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of my favorite, uh, and the author of this threatens it as a favorite because they won't stop talking pop culturally, but one of my favorite 
lines in modern literature, at least, is uh, from the death um, from the Deathly Hallows, uh, and it's I open at the close. It's mm, when mm. when Harry thinks he's going to his death, and I dearly love that because I think what's so beautiful to me about that is we're so scared of of a dying. Yeah. Right. Whether it's a career, uh, a, a situation, uh, a marriage, a relationship, and yet what we have not trained ourselves in, um, what we have not equipped ourselves in, is recognizing that there is openness after this. Yeah. You, you open at the close. The closing of a thing just yields new life mm-hmm. in whatever version, you know, yeah, whether it's right. permanent physical death opening into presence with the Lord, whether it's I lost my job and... and the suffering that can be felt there. I don't know. Just for me, there's something so radical about that level of openness to, um, to walk in, you know, and it, it requires maybe a lot more than I have to give to it some days, but you know, the, the question of what does it mean and, and how does it reach some sort of fulfillment to me? That's what I want to model for my kids. Like, right. Right. Like it's yeah. not, uh, to be scared of life, mm-hmm. you know, um, life will hurt you. Life will ding you. Life will harm you. Life may kill you. Mm. But r- maintaining openness to to all the beauty that is inherent there through the, the naturally creative life as we go about making meaning and brushing our teeth and painting the Sistine Chapel. Like, yeah. you know, yeah. um, did Lucy Maud Montgomery write Green Gables? Yes. All right. Yeah. One of the one of my favorite lines from that text is, "Thank you, Andy." Uh, is <laughs> all things great are wrapped up in all things small. Mm. Bam. You know? Bam. And uh, you know, but 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 nothing great can occur without openness to those small things. Right. right. Anyway, so that's, that's yeah. sort of how I would answer that question. Uh, I think that's beautiful. I, what? So this is this is my conclusion, as it were, before I invite. If anybody has anything last to say, Ian does. Uh, oh, you've got something else to share. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. I didn't want to put a bow on. He's quote trolling. Sure. Well, yeah. <laughs> what what you were saying about like being afraid of of uh, the the death that is just woven into. Our existence. Um, I thought of Auden again because I just Jeez. always have Auden on the mind. <laughs> Sorry, Stephen King. This <laughs> was meant to be for you. <laughs> he has he has a long poem called "The Age of Anxiety." So I just thought of um, these four lines with what you were saying. Sure. Um, and he writes there: We would rather be ruined than changed. We would rather die in our dread than climb the cross of the moment and let our illusions die. Mm. Oh, absolutely! Wow. Uh, and, <laughs> and what we're and what we're yeah what we're what we're kind of landing on is the the dissolving the dissipating of the fear that holds us back. I have two passages I want to read. I want to call back to something that I said near the near the beginning of it, where he said. Uh, King writes in on writing, he says, I'm convinced that fear is at the root of most bad writing. We observed earlier, it's probably at the root of most bad anything. And then, of course, I want to emphasize again, the scariest moment is always just before you start. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wanted to close with his actual conclusion of on writing. Um, uh, This is the final paragraph of the book. It says, uh, this is King's words, some of this book perhaps too much, has been about how I learned to do it. Much of it has been about how you can do it better. The rest of it, and perhaps the best of it, is a permission slip. Mm -hmm. You can, 
you should, and if you're brave enough to start, you will. Writing is magic, as much the water of life as any other creative art. The water is free, so drink. Drink and be filled up. And I love his phrasing of, and I told you guys when I uh, expressed why I so badly wanted to talk about this book, as I said, it does for me what uh, no other book of practical instruction in any arena has ever done for me. It gives me permission and it gives me a path. And I love the way he phrases, you can, you should, and if you're brave enough to start, mm. you will. Mm. May that be said about anything that we would uh, wish for, hope for, dream of, mm-hmm. um, pursue, anticipate. Uh, you can, you should, and if you're brave enough to start, you will. And um, and yeah, I I think I think we can leave it there. Um, I thank you guys so much for having this conversation with me. I don't, let's, let's just, let's just leave it there. I don't, I don't even want to do like, a, I, I just want to thank all of you guys for this yeah. has been a really great weekend and, uh, and it's just been a really fun time to get to hang out and experience friendship and, and everything. But I just, yeah, I'm grateful for all of you and yes. very, very thankful for this conversation. Thank you very much. And you can find me. <laughs> <laughs> Stop Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And you can continue the conversation in a variety of ways. You can follow us on Twitter, at The Fear of God. You can like and follow us on Facebook, or join the Facebook Fear of God discussion group. You can follow us on Instagram, at Fear of God Podcast, or go to morethanonelesson.com to leave a comment on this post or any of the other official episode posts. Email us at fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. Our theme music was composed by Lee Wright and Reed Lackey, and our podcast art was crafted by Jacob Hunt of jacobhuntcomics.com. Merchandise for the show can now be found at tpublic.com. Just search for The Fear of God Podcast, all one word. And last but not least, if you listen to us through iTunes, we would greatly appreciate a rating or a review. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. And in an in avenue, it uh, the sorry, I'll say that again. <laughs> First take. Nope. Yeah, that's it. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> um.